This episode is brought to you by Evolve Golf, makers of the number one performance golf tee. One of the things I'm trying to do with everybody who works for me is help them understand who they really are. Not who they think they are, who their girlfriend or wife thinks they are, who their mom thinks they are, but who they really are. What they're wired to be successful at and what they're going to struggle with. is the Getting Better Now podcast presented by the Golf Business Network, the show by golf professionals for golf professionals, profiling experts from inside and outside the golf industry to help you advance your career, make a lasting impact, and achieve your goals. Here's your host, PGA professional from St. David's Golf Club, Dean Candle. It's been said that you can't grow personally or professionally without developing self-awareness. Knowing how you're perceived by others, what your strengths and weaknesses are, how you handle stress, and how you impact those around you are just some of the elements of self-awareness that can go a long way in helping all of us enjoy success at work and also at home. For Cameron Doan, the head professional at Preston Trail in Dallas, this pursuit of developing self-awareness for himself and his staff members has paid huge dividends. For Cameron, he's been able to lead each team member with a higher level of effectiveness since he knows their individual needs and how they will respond in certain situations. As he tells us, this has also allowed him to raise his level of self-awareness and understand how his staff members perceive his actions. As the 2018 National Bill Strawsball Award winner and a recent inductee into the Texas Golf Hall of Fame, Cameron has spent his career devoted to getting the most out of his staff and helping them achieve their personal goals, no matter what those goals may be. You'll hear him describe the methods he uses to achieve this and plenty more valuable insight. This episode is a little longer than normal, but I thought it was too good to split up into two episodes. This conversation is a well. So, Cameron, why don't we start this conversation by you giving us a little background a uh, about yourself, about the steps so here that you it took is, to get to Preston Trail. Cameron Tell us Doan. a little bit about how you got there. Sure, um, and thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to doing this. Hopefully, it helps some other folks. Of course. I grew up in a small town in New Mexico called Silver City. Uh, about 10,000 people and had a nine-hole golf course with no driving range. And my dad was the golf professional and the superintendent. So wow. at the age of six or seven years old, my brother and I, the brother Brandon, who's a couple of years younger, that was our babysitter in the summer. We were out there all day, every day. It was a way to be around our dad. And that's how we fell in love with golf. Anybody that's grown up that way knows when you when you have something like that, where there's not a lot of play, there's also not a driving range, you kind of go create your own golf course, which was a pretty cool way to grow up. So fast forwarding a little bit, um, not knowing at the time, I, was, I grew up in a perfect way to be in the golf business. Because I was playing with adults as early as the age of 11 or 12 in the game, so to speak. You know, every golf course has a game where the guys gather at noon on Wednesday and Friday and choose upsides and throw a few dollars in a pot and go get after it. And I was a very early participant in that. 
So I had a lot of practice in managing my emotions and figuring out how to relate to people with all different types of backgrounds with golf as a common vehicle. So I was pretty lucky. Um, I played golf at University of Texas, El Paso. And uh, by then, my dad had actually moved to another town in New Mexico, Roswell, and was running a public golf course there that was 18 holes with a range and busier. Went to work for him as uh, one of his assistants for about nine months. And then in the spring of 1992, a man named Bill Eschenbrenner at El Paso Country Club called and offered me a job to come work for him. And my dad had built a, a large plan around using me to better his own business. When the call came in from Esch, we sat down and talked about it, and he said, You've probably learned what you can learn from me. Esh is the best in the business on the private side in our section. You need to go work for him. Mm -hmm. So pretty cool dad to do that. Yeah. Pretty cool dad. And I, I worked for Esh for three and a half years. And what he did, he shaped the way I, uh, I developed my assistance today. He took me under his wing. He not only showed me what he did, but more importantly, he explained why he did it. He gave me the background on why things happened. Mm -hmm. And he retired at the end of 1995 and told the board as he was retiring, you guys don't need to interview the next guys right here. So they hired me at the age of 27 to follow him. Mm -hmm. Again, a guy putting himself second and putting me first, looking out for my future and for the future of the game. I ran El Paso Country Club for four years, and Preston Trail called, and it worked out to be the perfect fit for I was exactly what they were looking for at the age of 31. That was 20 years ago, and I'm still here, and I'll be here till they kick me out. Mm -hmm. Jumping back a little bit to, to your experience, first with your dad and then with Bill Eschenbrenner, kind of putting your needs before theirs. I would imagine that kind of set a foundation for you when you, you saw that example with your dad saying, okay, you need to go do this. I have a, I had a great plan that was going to involve you, but it's going to be better for you if, uh, if you move on from here. And it's one thing for you know, a father to say that to a son, but have you had that happen where you've done that with assistants that have worked for you and said, you know, whether it's the time of year that they're leaving, you know, to, to take a better opportunity where you've had to just, you know, it's the right thing, even though it's going to adversely affect you or your operation. Yes, that is yeah. definitely something I got from my dad. So I'm going to bounce back to another topic and I'll come back and, and give it a couple examples of that question you asked. But one of the things I learned from my dad, and again, I didn't really understand I was learning as I was, but running a public golf operation in the state of New Mexico, pretty isolated. You don't have people running over you to go to work for you. Mm -hmm. So he had to figure out a way to get people that were interested in being around golf, put their strengths out front and hide their weaknesses and create a team that, that could run an operation. So he'd have teachers that were coming out to close the shop after work or working full time in the summer. He had a he had a guy that opened his shop in Roswell that was a retired dispatcher for a beer distributor. 
and he was great at what he did. So he showed me the importance of don't worry about who this person might be. Figure out what their strengths are. And if they love being around golf, if there's a way to plug them into what you do and their strengths are going to help to make the overall team better, you can hide their weaknesses and everybody wins. Mm-hmm. So I've held on to that philosophy. Now, being in Dallas, um, it's easier to – there are more people knocking on my door to go to work for us than there were my dad's. But it's still the same philosophy. Everybody's different. you got to dig in and find out what they're good at and put them in position to help and succeed. Well, a lot of people out there in that situation right now where you know I talk to guys all the time that are hiring and they're saying, I just can't find good people. So that's a perfect example of saying – the goal doesn't need to be to find this this five tool player. Right. You need somebody with some tools, right? And be able to put them in the right position. That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. And if somebody wants to be around golf and they enjoy being around people, if you're any good at coaching, you can figure out how to plug them in, most likely. And so this will lead into the second thing you said about doing what's right for somebody that works for you. Uh, I got this from Larry Brown, the basketball coach. So I hope you know who Larry is, but Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. So his record is, I'm in in Philly. So, ah, so, you know, okay. Right. (laughs) So, um, I was lucky enough to be in a room where he was telling stories Mm -hmm. and somebody said, asked the question, when you go take over a team, what is it you're trying to sort out? He said, it's actually pretty simple. There are four very distinct things that I had to make sure happened. And when I got all four of them across, we would win. So they're all important. So I'm not going to list them in any particular order. But one was the players had to believe I knew what I was doing. I had to prove that I knew how to coach and I knew the game. Two. The players had to believe that I could make them better as individual players. Three, the players had to believe that if they followed my lead and the way I wanted the game played, they would win. And four, they had to believe I cared about them as people, not just as players. And he said, when I got all four of those across, that I was going to get the most out of that group that they could get. So... Mm -hmm. That's kind of my philosophy when it comes to managing my crew. And sure. When they when they believe all four of those, then I'm going to get their A game. And if I can get their A game, we're going to be just fine. Which one of those is the most challenging for you? You know, I'd say it um it kind of depends on the individual because you'll have mm-hmm. you'll have some guys or girls that trust immediately that you know what you're doing and there's others that keep poking at you and want to be, they want you to prove it. Um, so I, I think they're all challenging dependent on the individual. That sounds like a dodge. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess at my age, I'm 51 and I've got some skins on the wall. So I probably don't have to work as hard anymore. Proving I know what I'm doing. I I should hope not. (laughs) Right. But they still, especially in today's millennial generation, they still Mm kind of want to see for sure that what you're saying is going to work. 
So there has to be an experience or two where you say, okay, look, this is probably what's going to happen today, and here's how you ought to handle it. And when it unfolds the way you tell them it's going to, you got them. Mm-hmm. Is it okay for somebody to come work for you with their their number one goal saying, I want to go work for Cameron Doan. I want to work at Preston Trail because it's going to get me to the next level. It's going to get me to my, my ultimate goal of being a head golf professional somewhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So let's go down that path a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. There's something that I follow. It's called the motivation spectrum. So this comes out of one of those smart Ivy League think tanks. I got all this information from, from my buddy, Bruce Crowley. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take a second to explain, but it's going to come back and answer what we're talking about. So if I remember right, I think it was somebody at Harvard. They did this workplace motivation study, trying to sort out what it is that gets people to give you their A game. So my definition of motivation is this. People walk into work every day with a tank that's got some amount of effort in it they can give. Now, we don't all have our tank filled 100% capacity every day. If we're not feeling good or life sideways outside, we might only have 75 or 80%. But mm-hmm. to me, motivation is being able to get that individual to empty their tank for you on that day, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I'm always trying to figure out how to do that. So this motivation spectrum thing, I'll, I'll talk you through it. There are six different types that they broke it down to. There are three that are positive, and then there are three that at times can be positive, but in the long run are negative. So the three positive are called play, purpose, and potential. And then the three negative are called economic, emotional, and inertia. So I'm going to start on the negative side because those are easier to define than I'll start at the bottom. Yeah. So inertia is pretty easy to understand. That's the individual that they wake up in the morning and they look around their their apartment or their house and they figure, you know what, I got nothing better to do today than go to this job. I kind of need the paycheck. I'm kind of bored. I don't want to get the one ads or get on the internet to find something better. So I'm just going to show up. And I'm going to give them the minimum amount of effort I can get and collect my paycheck and get out of there. Mm -hmm. So we've all seen that guy, right? Um, Oh, yeah. And there's not much you can do for that guy. The one above that is emotional. So in sports terms, that's a kid playing basketball because their dad wants them to. Mm -hmm. They'd be a really good athlete. They could have a lot of talent for basketball, but they don't love it. So they get out there and they have some success and they get pushed and people get behind them and talk about how great they are. And somewhere along the way, things don't go well and they get criticized and they look up and think, you know, I don't love this anyway. I'm playing this for somebody else. Why should I keep trying this hard? So in the golf world, that's the, that's the kid that becomes an assistant because they think it's cool to have their name on their bag or they want to go work at a place where a bunch of Rick's folks hang out. They're in mm-hmm. it for kind of tangential reasons rather than just because they love it. And the one above that is called economic. So that's exactly what it sounds like. That's working for an extrinsic reward, whether it's financial or that's that's the kid that 
his dad says, if, if you play well high school football this season, I'll buy you a car. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't really work in the long term. So the example mm-hmm. I use is if you got an outside service crew and you had to give them a raise every time you needed their A game, well, pretty soon your budget would be right. blown and you couldn't get it done. Mm-hmm. So those three things exist, and, and I'm always trying to minimize those. Okay, so now we'll go to the positive. So play, purpose, and potential. So play is when the work itself is its own reward. You're just so eat up with it and love it. You can't wait to get there and give your best every day. So that's probably you and me. Mm-hmm. I don't know what your background yep. is, but just yep. listening to you, you probably grew up similar I did. You've been around golf your whole life, and you just can't get enough. You're right. That's true. So it's easy to get that guy or girl to empty their tank for you every day. You really don't have to try very hard. Purpose is when you're playing for the name on the front of the jersey instead of the name on the back of the jersey. Mm -hmm. So that's when the greater good, putting in your own effort to see the team win, or in the case of a golf operation, knowing that they take care of their little silo that day, then it's going to make everybody look better. Again, that's a pretty strong motivational tool. It's easy to get the most out of that person. Mm -hmm. In my case, one of the things I get the most joy out of is when somebody that works for us figures out what their path is long-term in the golf world, and I get them one step closer to it, whether I send them to another place as an assistant or get them their own head job or director of instruction gig, that feels pretty good. Mm-hmm. So it's easy for me to stay motivated as a coach, which is really what I am, because I know if I keep coaching hard and in the right way, these kids are going to make it, and I can look myself in the mirror and feel pretty good about what I did. Mm-hmm. And then potential is the one that you talked about, that kid that wants to go to work for me or a guy like Kerry Cosby mm-hmm. and says, if I work for you and get after it, I'll become a head professional. So again, it's easy to get that kid's A game. But let me ask that. Let me dig into that a little bit more, though. Mm-hmm. Just saying that, you you need to know what their motivation is, though, of why they want to be a head golf professional, though, right? That's right. They may be motiv- They may be motivated, you know, for you on a daily basis to say, "Yep, I got to keep. I got to keep doing well here. I got to keep doing what Cameron's asking me to do." Uh, I got to keep building relationships with these members here because that's going to get me to this next step. That's going to make me a head pro. That's when I get my job. That's when I get my shot. But you know, the further I get along in in my position here, the more you know I'm understanding that you know you need to really understand what your motivation is to get to that next job. And if it's because you want you know your name outside the golf shop or on the scorecard, right? And when you get there. It's not going to go too well. It's not going to go too well. That's exactly right. So that that right there, what you just talked about, that's the emotional motivator, which isn't going to work. So mm-hmm. what I do is it, when I get somebody that says they want to be me somewhere else, then I start working on teaching them how to think and understand what that means. And mm-hmm. I, I will constantly be, be in their ear. Sometimes it's several times a day. Sometimes it might go a month without talking about it. But I'm always giving examples of 
here's why this needs to happen and here's why that won't work. So by educating them on what it means to be me, they'll begin to understand whether or not they really want to do it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to dig into, I think we're going to talk about um, this method that you know that you use, and I think it's probably where this comes into play. But when you're talking about somebody says they want to be, I want to be a head golf professional, what, what in your mind after coaching other PGA professionals through this from your experience, and this might be hard to answer on a whim, but you know, what do you think now are the most critical skills that you need to have? And let's throw out um, the, the, the vocational skills that we all are taught and learn kind of on a daily basis, even if, even if it's by default. Sure. Not sure. that not that teaching and playing isn't important. Hey, that's it's a it should be a big part of what we do. I know it's a big part of what you do, but aside from that, what are the Le- critical skills? Leadership, motivation, and organization. Mm-hmm. And communication. Yeah. Right. I, that, that's just those four jump out at me. Is you have to be good at all four of those. Really good at all mm-hmm. four of those. And we're not taught that. No, we're not. <laughs> right. And right. so that's one of the things that's a little frustrating. Um, and I, we'll get off on a tangent here, but whether it's the, the universities around the country that have the the four-year degree plans where these kids graduate and they're six months from being a class A, or it's our own organization and its education curriculum, neither one of those, in my opinion, touch any, if at all, on the things I just rattled off. Mm-hmm. And that's just beyond me how that stuff gets because you have to be good at those because you're leading, you're the face of the club or Mm -hmm. municipal operation. You're leading the people that work at the club. You're leading if, you know, you're leading the people that play golf there, whether they're your members or, or customers, you're leading students, right? Uh, What gets me is just, you know, my, my little tangent is that, somebody uh referenced that well yeah we have leadership in the executive management track now if you want to learn about being a general manager there's there's leadership and management uh in that curriculum well okay great but does that mean that unless i'm going to be a gm i don't know how to i don't need to know how to lead or manage at a lot of clubs uh, i don't have to tell you a lot of clubs the golf pro is the face of the club so So, you're out there leading the way every day so here's what here's one of the analogies I use to try to get this to make a little more sense. All of us are some form of a college football fan. Mm-hmm. So I think the golf professional, I don't care if that's public, private, resort, I think the golf professional is the head football coach at a big state university. Mm-hmm. So Alabama's an easy one to talk to because they've been wearing people out for the last 10, 12 years. So Nick Saban. Right. So Nick Saban is dealing with the media, he's dealing with the boosters, he's dealing with the administration, he's dealing with his coaches, he's dealing with his players, and he's in charge of winning. So as long as he's winning, he's pretty smart. As soon as they stop winning, all of those other things become to come into question. So what he's got to do is be able to communicate with all five of those groups I talked about in an effective way. And that's a pretty big skill set difference between communicating with boosters, communicating with players. Mm-hmm. And he's got to get them bought in to what his big picture vision is to the point where when they hit a bump in the road, 
Alabama doesn't hit many. But when it, fortunately, when a team loses a couple of games, he's got to be effective enough and communicating with those five groups that they don't start to jump ship and question that he knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. That's what I think we as golf professionals do. Is we have we're communicating with the the high school kids that are working in our outside service operation and the kids in their 20s that are our professional staff and the administration that we're either equal to or reporting to with a superintendent and general manager and controller and all the things that happen on the administrative side, the board of directors, the various committees, the people that come play golf. We have to be able to dial it up or down based on who we're talking to. We got to be able to convince them we know what we're doing. And we understand the big picture, and we're always making the right incremental decision to advance that big picture in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And you can't really learn that in school anyway, but that's what I hit my guys with that want to be me. I say, if you want to be successful, here are the things you're going to have to become good at. So I'll help you see how I do it and why, but you're going to have to develop your own way. Right, and I think that's why uh, I agree with you on those on the – the four skills that you pointed out. And that's why I think communication is so critical because you are communicating with all those different groups of people at your club from, like you said, the staff all the way through the different segments of your membership or, or if you're at a public facility through the customers that are coming through the door. And we're now we're communicating in all these different mediums too. It's, you know, yeah. it's not just face to face. It's not just email anymore. They want, you know, people want to log on and, on uh, Instagram and and see what's going on at the club as well. So yep. while there's a lot of opportunities, it's just to communicate better. There's a lot more, it's that much more critical that we're communicating on a regular basis because when things do go wrong, people understand, you know, maybe what the issues are or also they have a better relationship with you. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that they might cut you a little slack. They might cut you, know, you a little know, slack. That's right. For a little while, right? For Until you lose while. too many games. <laughs> At some point, if we're losing streaks too long, we all get kind of axed. But, you know, the, one of the other things that this just popped in my head, and uh, this will upset any GMs that are listening to this, but I really believe this. So going, going back to the example of football coaches, athletic director is in charge of the coach. There's mm-hmm. a, usually a pretty big gap in in the compensation packages between the athletic director and the football coach. Mm -hmm. So it's in that unusual situation where the athletic director is, is the coach's boss, but the coach is making more money than the athletic director. Yet the world is okay with that. Well, I kind of think the same thing exists between the, the golf professional and the general manager. Mm -hmm. Both jobs are important, but they're very different. And the example I give when I'm talking to other clubs or committees about compensation packages, I I get into this college football thing and I said, so we got boosters that are writing checks to be around the coach and uh, listen to him talk about how, what his strategy is going to be or sitting in their box watching him win a game. How many of you guys have ever written big checks to watch the athletic director run a meeting? All right. That always gets a chuckle out of them. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's not that the function's not important, but it's different. Definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's, and it's, you know, it's that front-facing job as a coach or a golf professional in a lot of clubs versus, you know, more of an, at, at some clubs, more of an admin role. It's an admin and, role, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And it and it is. Let's not let's not cheat our friends that are GMs about you know leading a club and managing people and and that's obviously part of it. But at a lot of traditional, at least private clubs, um, you're going to see that golf pro a lot more often than you're going to see the GM. That's right. And and, yeah. and we're we're on a stage as the head golf professional and director of golf, whatever the title is, whether it's public or private. We're on a stage. Everybody knows who we are. And if we slip up, if we don't act the right way when we're playing golf or we have two drinks instead of one in a bar or we say something we shouldn't say, it's going to get us. We're always on. And Mm -hmm. we should be compensated for that because it's not easy. Mm -hmm. And was that something that you understood from day one at Preston Trail? I'm sure when you step into that position – Yes. There's a there's an extra level of stress or or kind of maybe pressure that comes with that. Yes. I would think. Yes. And you're living that every day. I'm living that every um, day. Mhm. But it, you know the way I grew up, my dad and Esh both understood and lived that. So I mm-hmm. got to watch them do it the right way so I wasn't having to figure out as I went. I had two great role models. Mhm. So I knew what was coming. Let's jump back to what I I, I mentioned earlier that a tool that you use is the Berkman method. And you're going to tell us a little bit about how you use this, but tell us, you know, when you got into this, what exactly it is and how that's helping you coach your, your staff members to be better and help them achieve their goals. So the Berkman is an extraordinarily complex personality profile instrument that has been around for a long time. They're constantly upgrading it. Um, but it, it, it's a forced answer thing that you can take that tells you things about yourself you can't believe this thing can tell you. Um, for anybody out there that's had an experience with a Berkman or something like that, you can't understand what I'm talking about. But the real magic is my buddy Bruce Crowley. Um, he can take the information, which at times can be complex, and, and he can get it down to a golf pro level in a two- or three-page document and give me insight into what makes somebody tick, what they're wired to be good at, what they're going to struggle with, how they're going to react under stress, what the best way is to compliment them and constructively criticize them in order to continue to get their best game ever. It also, it, it's, it gives the gift of self-awareness, I would say. Um, one of the things I'm trying to do with everybody who works for me is help them understand who they really are. Not who they think they are, who their girlfriend or wife thinks they are, who their mom thinks they are, but who they really are. What they're wired to be successful at and what they're going to struggle with. And this thing is a really deep dive into, into who they are. So. Example, um, it can talk about whether or not they're wired to be outside all the time or they need to be indoors in an administrative situation. Do they need to be in large groups or are they better off in one-on-one? Are they the kind of people that actually draws energy from loud, busy environments or do those environments actually sap their energy and they need to go recover? How long can they go full before they need a day off just to recharge and, and get back to being their best. Wow. 
Was this something you discovered for yourself and walked yourself through first and then realized, hey, I need to use, I need to use this on everybody that comes work to work for me? And if assuming you did use it on yourself, what did you learn back when you when you first did it that's helped you? So I was asked to be part of a study um, back in the mid 2000s uh, by what was then AMF, what is now GBN. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there was four of us that took it. And uh, Crowley was hired to run it, and it was the goal was just simply to see, okay, we're going to pick four golf professionals from different parts of the country at, at high-end private clubs, put them through this, and see what similarities pop up. And uh, I won't mention the other three guys because I don't know how much they use it, and I don't know that they want to be out there. But what it what it mm-hmm. did what it did for me probably so I, at this point I hadn't even met Bruce. We just had a phone debrief and. Five minutes into the conversation with him, I stopped him and I said, okay, this is blowing me away what you're telling me about me, but I can also see I'm going to have to figure out how to use this to better coach the people that work for me. Mm-hmm. So that was in 2006. And, and there's been stops and starts on using it the right way, but it has become an absolute benchmark tool for us. And... Uh, Hard to describe how much it. Well, I've heard you make the comparison to it's like TrackMan, right? When you put a student on TrackMan and you're getting the data, right? Yeah. Then it's then yeah. it's up to you to to implement that to make your student better. You have the facts in front of you, right? When you're using TrackMan, okay, yeah. here's what's going on. How am I going to improve that? No different right now when you've got all the facts about somebody uh, and and their behavior and how they're wired. How are you going to use that one, I guess, to better them? And then you need to also use that to make the operation better. Yes. Let's get into, dive into maybe, what's an example of somebody that's used this to, to help them move along? There's a young man that worked for us for seven years, and he just left uh, to get his, he got his own uh, head professional position earlier this year. And he's the one guy that we've actually had to take this thing twice. So he took it about three months after he went to work for us in 2012, and then he took it again in 2017. And it showed how much he had changed. So I'll give an example of this guy. Mm-hmm. So he is a uh, – his dad was a golf professional, so he grew up the same way I did. So we had a common language immediately. He's probably got the highest IQ of anybody that's ever worked for me. He's a brilliant mm-hmm. kid. Um, one of those guys that from a scientific perspective, he can figure things out. He could take a computer program and figure out how to make it work and, and actually improve it, which is rare in the golf. <laughs> but his, his challenge was he has what I called with him an intellectual arrogance. So his, mm-hmm. his reaction as a young man right out of school when he ran into somebody that couldn't keep up with him on IQ level, he would subconsciously dismiss them as being able to make a positive contribution to anything he was doing. Mm-hmm. He didn't even know he was making that. You saw this playing out in front of you. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you can imagine how that went over when he was in charge of the bag room. Mm-hmm. The high school kids hated him. Right. Because they could feel that he didn't think they were worthy of his coaching. He just 
they'd make one mistake and he'd dismiss them. Mm -hmm. So my biggest challenge with him was not really teaching him the things he needed to do from a blocking and tackling perspective. He had to realize that he wasn't going to be a head professional unless he could figure out how to get the people around him to work together as a team and help deliver the service level or product that he had to. He had to mm -hmm. figure out how to relate to people that were not on his intellectual level. Mm -hmm. And we were able to do that. So dig into that a little bit deeper. So let's walk through that kind of on a, on a, on a daily basis. So I'm going to assume you have this, this conversation, you have a, you know, a, an open and honest conversation saying, here's something that I've on, that I've witnessed, um, this, we, we've uncovered it through this analysis that you need to work on in order to get you to the, achieve the goals you you want to achieve and that you're capable of achieving. So how often are you checking in with him or giving an update or an evaluation on how you're doing on that? Are you, when you hear something happen, say you're walking through the shop or sitting in your office and you hear a negative situation, exactly like you were talking about, are you jumping in then or what's, how yes. are, how are you coaching him through that on a specific, from a specific way? So, in his particular case, one of the things that the Berkman showed me is he actually craved open and honest coaching, even if it was perceived as negative. He, he wanted to hear the truth. And at times he would actually fight back. And I would remind him what the Berkman told us. I said, you're wired to hear this. So even if it's pissing you off right this second, this is mm -hmm. in your own best interest. So I knew I could be completely honest with him. So that made it a lot easier for me to be able to coach him because I didn't have to tap dance around something when he handled it the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And I always, as soon as something popped up that needed to be addressed, if I couldn't talk to him, I'd shoot him an email and say, we need to sit down tomorrow or Wednesday or whatever we could get to it. And we're going to talk mm -hmm. about this thing in detail. So with that said, I assume you've had the opposite situation where maybe somebody wasn't going to be open to that open and honest feedback based yes. on what you learned through Berkman. Yes. What do we do then? That's harder. Yeah. Um, now, again, what, what the Berkman does when it shows up somebody that I have to tap dance around, I have the initial conversation with them, and actually they're hearing it from Crowley and they're reading it of saying that this is how they have to be coached. And I'll remind them every now and then of that conversation and say, I need to explain this in a way that it's not going to beat you down. So hang with me as we figure that out. Mm -hmm. And it, but that that's definitely harder. I am wired, which is one of the things that Berkman told me, under stress, I get short and direct. Right. I am wired not to worry about anybody else's feelings that's working for me because it's more important to just go get it done right. So I'm going to snap at them. But I tell mm -hmm. all my guys that. I said, here's how I'm going to react, boys, when the first starts flying and we've got a big tournament going. Right. So don't be surprised about it. It's just the way I'm wired. Don't take it personal. We'll talk it through later. But when I fire an order out over the radio, you guys just need to execute. Don't push back. Right. And you couldn't do your job as well as, as, as well as you do without being that way, right? I'd imagine. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I got I to be me. 
And, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that Berkman does is it lets people know who they are and it makes it okay to be who they are as long as they're, you know, back in the, in the example of the young man that, that I talked about being so smart. He couldn't be who he was all the time because it was going to upset the people that worked for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you say, would you say this is challenging or keeping up with this? And I, because I, I think about, you know, a tool like that and it's how valuable that is. You know, I'm me, I'm 10 years into managing my own operation and, you know, I feel like every day I'm learning something different about something I could have done better or how I could have managed or led a situation better or led the people better. But I don't know how often that's happening throughout, you know, the golf industry at clubs all over the country. And I, my only reasoning I can think of is that it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. Yeah. It's definitely not easy. It it takes time. It takes effort. It takes energy. Um, But here's why I keep pushing. So, one of the differences at a place like Preston Trail or clubs like this, where the membership is small and the process to get in is both exclusive and expensive, mm-hmm. they're going to be more likely to demand some one-on-one attention from whoever they perceive as in charge. Well, there's only one of me, and I right. can only be in one place at a time. So what hit me really hard a month after I got here is I was going to have to delegate spectacularly well in order to be able to run the place the way it should be run. Mm -hmm. I had to have a group of guys around me that could handle things the way I wanted them handled without me being there. So that's that motivates me to make sure I'm doing a good job of coaching them because they're they're only going to be as good as I coach them to be. Mm -hmm. So that's that's why I keep doing it. That's one of the reasons I keep doing it. Yeah. And I've heard that over and over. Anybody that's listened to all the episodes that we've done on this podcast, that's not the first time they've heard the importance of delegation when you get into a leadership and management position. Uh, it's been it's been universal. Anybody that I've talked to, has, even whether it's the challenge of manning a, managing a 36-hole, 50,000-round facility or at a club like yours, that the challenges are the same. It's demands on your time, mm-hmm. right? And it right. doesn't matter exactly what kind of club you're at. Uh, it comes down to the same thing, and you can't be everywhere, you know, all the time. Right. right. So, for those of us that aren't using a tool like this, and you've certainly piqued my interest, I've had this on kind of a my running to do list of things that have been sitting there to get into uh, an analytical tool like this to learn more about not just the people I'm working with, but myself as well. It sounds like by talking to you that self-awareness is a huge key and it's one of the really positive results that comes out of this. Without using a tool like this, one, do you think that we can teach that? And is there a way you think that for anybody listening can get started on trying to help people with that? So the evaluation of the people that work for you, which is something that I don't think people do enough of. And it's hard mm-hmm. to do because it takes time. So when we do it twice a year, we go through an evaluation process. And we don't hit this every year, but the goal is twice a year. And I've created a form for each job in the operation 
So what I do is I'm going to evaluate everybody. They're going to evaluate themselves. And there's a bunch of open-ended questions on there. And then we're going to also have, so the assistants are going to evaluate the kids that work for them. There's going to be probably three documents on each person, including the one they do themselves, of here's how I perceive the way this guy's doing his job. Mm -hmm. And then you sit down and you go through them. And it's, it's a pretty powerful tool when somebody has to answer several open-ended questions about themselves and why they're there. And then they also get to hear what others think of what they're doing and why. What it does is it forces the hard conversation to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's where the magic happens. When you can get somebody a little bit emotionally raw and you can dive into some things that are pretty tough, one of two things is going to happen. If they're there for the right reason, and going back to the motivation spectrum, if they're there for one of those three positives, then they're going to take it the right way and get better. If they're not, mm -hmm. it's going to smoke it out. And this is also where getting back to, I'm thinking about the Larry Brown four points, when they know that you have their best interest in mind, right? right. That's going to go a long way in these conversations, right? That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. When, when they know I'm trying to help them and I care about them as a person, it makes it easier to, to have that tough conversation for sure. What's a quick example or two of first, let's say your assistant professional position. I don't know how, if you have, you know, first assistant or so, but let's say your most senior assistant, what's an, what's a question on the evaluation that is maybe a challenge for them to answer or makes them really think deep about the, the job that they're doing? So the senior guys are going to be evaluated and how they're developing the younger guys that work for them. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to ask them a couple of questions along those lines of, okay, what kind of effort are you getting out of employee A who's only been here for six months? And why do you think that's all the effort you're getting? Or I'll ask them, why do you think that guy's here? What is mm -hmm. it that I'll, I'll give them a specific, maybe a specific example of something they're not very good at asking why they think that is. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to, the, the senior guys, I'm really trying to teach them how to think. Right. Wow. That's so valuable. And it's, I've been talking to a lot of people lately, you know, here in the Northeast, we're in kind of that hiring season or where we're thinking about next season, we're starting to tip over to the end of the year and trying to, been talking about how to add more value in the jobs that we put out there. Everybody knows in the golf business as an assistant professional, the, 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 the income is limited. If you're in this business as an assistant to get rich, you're not going to be in it very long, right? But <laughs> right. <laughs> I, th I'm just thinking about you know, this as a way to add value to your job and attract better people. It's, it's what a great tool not only if you're using something like the Berkman or Myers-Briggs or something like that, but having this commitment to development because that doesn't happen everywhere. And so if you want to attract good people, this is such a great way to do it if you can commit to, to, to doing it, right? Yeah. It takes time. It takes time, time and effort. It takes time and effort. Yeah, the, the, that's what people, they're, they're really after somebody that's going to take an interest in them and help them be better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things I, 
I do in my own head, and I explain this to the senior assistants that I have, is, is I break our team into three categories. And, and I think this concept works anywhere you are, whatever part of the country or whatever type of operation you're in. I call them lifers, developers, and teammates. So lifers would be you and me or mm -hmm. our director of instruction or our caddy master, somebody that's going to be at Preston Trail or at Shinnecock or at Chevy Chase for the long term. Mm -hmm. They're in the job they want to be in for a long time, and they're really trying to figure out not only how to be as good at that job as they could be, but they enjoy developing the people that they interact with in their department, so to speak, on a mm -hmm. daily basis. Now, there's only so many lifers that a place can have. You can't have right. all lifers. Developers are the kids that are the assistants that want to be a head professional or want to be a director of instruction or want to be a college golf coach or want to go to work for the section office you know, want to, or want to be a sales rep for Titleist. There's lots of different career paths now that you can have in the golf industry and still be a member of the PGA of America. And I don't, I don't wall any of those off with our young people. Sure. I explain, you know, if I, if I think they're wired to be good at one of those, I'll explain why I think that and we'll dive into what that's like. And if I can't get them enough information, I'll put them in touch with somebody that can. But the developer is somebody that is working for you for the specific reason of getting where they want to go. And then the teammate, and that's the ones that we have the most of, they're there because they need a job. So that's the high school kid that's there because his dad said, you need to go, you need to have a job because you need to learn what it's like, or we need you to help support us and have your own gas money. Or you're the college kid that is working for beer money, or mm -hmm. maybe the kid that's out of college that's trying to find their deal and they're bartending at night and need a job during the day to supplement. Or it's somebody on the back end of their career and they were a high school teacher and they retired, but they still need to make some money or they need somewhere to go. Now, that's usually the bulk of our operations is those teammates. They're right. not really professionals, but they love being around the game and around people. So how are you going to get the most out of that group? Mm -hmm. And I coach each of those three groups differently, and I'm always trying to figure out where somebody fits. And I'll talk to them that way. And explain that to them. This is this is where I think you fit, and this is why. And once they agree, then it's easier to have those conversations and expectations set. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really what I'm taking away from this conversation is about being able to to know your people that well that you're not just using some blanket what you ever might think is your management style or leadership style. Uh, or trying to fit people into positions that they just don't fit into because you're, you're, you're swimming upstream if you're doing that, right? You're not going to get That's the right. results that you're, that you're, that in our positions, you're, you're, you're there to get, right? And it's about getting the best out of your people and doing great things for them. You so know, I got a, junction. I got a coaching story I'll tell that, that maybe this will help drive home the point. So our director of instruction, we actually call him director of game improvement. But the PGA mm -hmm. of America doesn't have that right. title. So his name is Jeff I Martin. like the title. I, I think that's more appropriate is Director mm -hmm. of Game Improvement because that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? Yeah, we here we call them Game Improvement Programs. We don't call them Instruction Programs. I love right? that. 
I yeah. love that. So Jeff went to work for us in 2004 as a 23-year-old entry-level assistant a year out of college. And the, the group that, was, that he was working with, the three assistants that were older than him at the time, one of them is, uh, is now a head professional at a club here in Dallas. One of them is a director of instruction at, uh, in Chicago in Medina. And one of them is running his version of eBay selling used clubs in Seattle. So it was three mm-hmm. very capable professionals that are all still in it. And he worked his way up the chain. All of those guys were gone by 2008. And about six months into being the senior assistant, we're sitting in my office one day going through things. And he, he gets a little emotional. And he says, I got to tell you something I don't think you want to hear. And I said, what is it? He said, I don't want to be you. I said, what do you mean you don't want to be me? He said, I don't want to do all the things you do. I'm going to enjoy some of the things about being in charge of a place. I want to focus on teaching, coaching, fitting. So at that time, we did not have a dedicated director of instruction. We had uh, we had one of those three guys I just talked about that's a head professional in another club in Dallas, had been an assistant here since 01 and did a lot of teaching and had a big following. And right. when, when he left for his own job, kind of left a vacuum because there was a lot of members that had enjoyed working with him. They had tried me and it didn't click or whatever, and it left a hole. So I was already in the back of my head trying to figure out how to solve that. And Jeff is sitting here bearing his soul, telling me this is what he wants to do. So the timing couldn't have been more perfect. But the important thing was he felt comfortable enough to tell me, I don't want to be you. I want to be something else. So that made me a better coach for everybody that's followed him of how to, it, it's not about what I want them to be. It's about yeah. helping them discover what they're wired to be. So I got the board to support the idea that we developed and uh, Jeff was, was our director of instruction from 2009 to 2012. And then Nike Goff came along and offered him a job as a lead fitter of their tour facility over in Fort Worth called The Oven. Mm-hmm. And he came to me again emotional because he really wanted to do it, but he didn't want to leave. And I knew he was going to get a chance to be around tour players and he was going to get a chance to be around guys that design clubs. And it would scratch some itches that he couldn't scratch here at Preston Trail anymore. So mm-hmm. I supported him, told him to go take it. He went and did that. I stayed in touch with him because I also knew he eventually would get tired of working for a large corporation because they were going to push him in a direction he didn't want to go. And he came back two years later in 2014 as a better director of instruction because of what he learned. Sure. And he's mm-hmm. still with us today, and he's just killing it. You know, I go back to what you said about that he it, it said to you, admitted to you that he didn't want to be you. And that it sounded like he maybe struggled with telling you that and like maybe he was letting you down or something because he said he wanted to go in a different direction. But I can, I sympathize with that, that experience because I think sometimes if, if we get into telling our assistants that, Hey, I'm here to develop you. I'm here to help. I'm here to help. But they think you're only steering them in say a head golf professional direction. I found they can be hesitant to open up with you to say, Hey, I don't, this isn't what I want to do. Yeah. But, but it sounds like you frame it in 
uh, hey, I'm here to help you no matter what you want to do, rather than just here to help you get to, you know, go down this one road versus all the others. And and that's something I learned the hard way because my younger self, my El Paso Country Club days and my early Preston Trail days, I was much harder on the guys that worked for me. And I felt like anybody that didn't want to be me and couldn't keep up with me probably didn't need to stay very long. Mm -hmm. And I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And as I figured that out the hard way a couple of times with a couple of kids that quit, it made me start looking for things like the Berkman of, okay, I'm, I'm not getting the best out of the guys that are working for me. So I got to become a better coach. And each, each guy that comes through here teaches me something. Each guy that comes through here, the experience that we have trying to help them makes me a better coach and gives me a better chance to help the guys that come by me. Well, I think today, just by this conversation, anybody that's listening to this is going to start to be a better coach. You've provided us with uh, some tools we can jump into. People can investigate the Berkman. Uh, we can look at just how we evaluate the people that are working for us and building their self-awareness. I think this has got you know me motivated to be a better coach and to be a better developer of the people that uh, that I have the pleasure of working with. So I can't thank you enough for your time today and 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 having this conversation because it's just so valuable. Uh, I think it's I think everybody's really going to get a lot from this. So thanks so much for for coming on. You bet. Thanks for asking.